Yeah, so Acts chapter 8. Um, what's the page number? Anybody? Volunteer? I don't have it. 1101. Thank you, 1101. <clears throat> page number 1101, Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Right, these uh, two Sunday uh, evenings, this one and the one next Sunday evening, we're looking at the two Christian sacraments, that is of baptism and communion, and trying to understand what we mean by them and what we don't mean by them. This evening we're looking at the subject of baptism, and with it bracketed in, um, confirmation. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray that you grant us understanding, and because on these things Christians have different views, we pray that we might um, see the core points of agreement and learn to uh, adapt any of our disagreements so that Christian unity is preserved. Amen. So, um, because it's a hot summer's evening, there's an outline which looks more daunting than it is, and there's plenty of PowerPoints to kind of um, enable you to take your eyes off of me and look at the screen. So, you may have seen babies baptised at some of our morning services, and you may have seen teenagers and older adults baptised at uh, one of our baptism and confirmation services. At the former, you may have seen little or minimal amount of water dabbed on the baby's forehead. That is because I learned as a curate not to pour it all over its head because it goes in their eyes and they cry 
and it looks embarrassing, whereas if you just have a little bit, it drips down the back of their head, and they look perfect, and you get kind of brownie points from all the mothers who think, but when I was a bachelor, I was hopeless. Um, I used to hold them like a porcelain vase, really. Um, but back to this. Um, whereas, at the, uh, whereas at the other, we take away this floor, and there is a baptistry underneath, and it's really very warm. Whereas at the, the former, we have a, a portable font, and yeah, the water is usually warmed up, but it's never quite as warm as uh, what's down below here. Now, concerning baptism, there are three issues in which Christians debate. First of all, who should be baptised, believers only or children? At what age can you say that a child believes? Clearly not six months, but what about 16 years? Quite clearly they can. So what about six years or ten years? Do they understand or don't they understand? When is someone old enough to believe, in other words? And you won't find the answer in the Bible. The second issue is how much? How much water might we use? Should it be a lot or a little? Or, in fact, somewhere in between? And the third issue is what are we actually saying at the service? So, let's take each in turn and giving most time in fact, almost all the time, to the first question. Should we baptise babies and adults, or just adults? Now, there are two viewpoints, yes and no. Uh, they are got that simple, isn't it, really? So, if you think um, it is uh, right to baptise babies, then you are what's called a pido. Baptist. Pido is derived from the Greek word for child, and it's from which we get some of our English words such as paediatrician, who is a doctor who specialises in children's health. And there are those who only baptise those who are adults or teenagers, um, usually termed credo-baptists. Credo is a Latin word, it's the language of the Romans, it literally means I believe. And it's where, of course, we get our word creed from, which is a summary of our beliefs. It's also where we get the word from word credible, meaning believable. And so there are two positions. Pido-Baptists who baptise children and adults and credo-Baptists who baptise only those who are able to profess the Christian faith, usually in their mid-teens or as adults. Now... The credo-baptist position is a 30-second argument, whereas the pido-baptist position is a 30-minute argument. So, it's quite simple. If you're a credo-baptist, it says, doesn't it, Acts 2.28, on the day of Pentecost, Peter tells the crowd, repent and be baptised. He means, of course, usually you put in repent and believe, in other words, repent and believe and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent means that um, you realise that you're in a rebellious state before God, that you're in the wrong, you're doing your own thing and uh, rather than God's thing. And what's needed is a realisation that uh, you're alienated from God and that if you continue in that position, then you're in danger of permanent ex exclusion 
from God's presence, which is an awful state of affairs. Now, you've, uh, you've been able to understand your position, and um, in order to uh, reorientate your way away from yourself and to God, you have come to a point of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done to enable you to be forgiven. Now, of course, in order to do that, you have to be of an age of understanding. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when that might be. There is a latitude, fortunately. But what is clear is that it is not when you're under one year of age. A six-month-old does not understand. It doesn't even know what the words are, repent and be baptised, mean. And so that's the end of the argument. We're not meant to baptise children. And if that was the case, this would be a very short sermon. But um, obviously, you realise, of course, since I'm an Anglican minister, I must think there is a case for the baptism of some children. I didn't used to think so. I used to wonder how on earth all these impressive Christian leaders I happen to have encountered. You know, they're great, really. Their lives match what they profess. They're very good apologists or evangelists. Can they not see that this is wrong? It takes a paradigm shift. You have to shift from seeing baptism as something what you do to being primarily something what God does. When you kind of reverse the perspective, you begin to understand. So, if you are a Baptist, then do bear with me. I'd just like to uh, suggest three things which would have to be, three things which would be very unlikely if the case for only believers' baptism was the only Christian one. The first thing um, would be that the church would have had to have been wrong for 1,500 years only since the time of the Reformation, at the time of the Anabaptists, where um, they uh, introduced the idea that you shouldn't baptise um, babies or infants at all. The second thing, uh, and that instinctively seems unlikely that the church got it wrong for 1,500 years. Secondly, many of the greats of the Christian faith, the greatest thinkers, have all been Pido-Baptists. So you take Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Cranmer, Whitfield, Wesley, Simeon, Ryle. And even today, when you look into the 20th century, who some of the, uh, the great evangelical Christian leaders of the 20th century were, you look at those five. Which ones are Pido-Baptists and which ones are Credo-Baptists? Well, the answer is, only the one in the middle, Billy Graham, who is still alive, is a credo-baptist. The others, top left, is someone called Jim Packer, who's a theologian. The one on the he's also still alive. Um, they're both in their 90s. The one on the right is someone called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The bottom left is an apologist, Francis Schaeffer, who both of those have died back in the 1980s. And the one on the bottom right, who died about five years ago, is John Stott, who is often described as, if you like, the Pope or the leader of evangelicals in the 20th century. As I said, I used to believe, 
how on earth could a Christian get their head around infant baptism? I've been fortunate to meet and listen and read all those guys, and um, the, the, the Pido Baptist ones particularly um, impressed me um, by the quality of their life, really. And I thought, and they were intelligent men, very intelligent. And I think, well, how on earth have they got their head around this? How have they not just been unaccepting of a tradition? And uh, the third thing would be that the early church, the very earliest Christians, those who lived in the first and second century of the church, they too, who would have also have been people, some of them, who would have been in contact with the original apostles, like the Apostle John, for example, that they would have had to have got it wrong. Now that seems unlikely, given that some of them had first-hand experience of the apostles. So, for example, take Polycarp. You can see when he lived, he says, 80 and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day. That's the day when he is going to be martyred. Um, and this hour that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you can see when he lived, and uh, it's unlikely that he lived to be a hundred, it's more likely that he was baptised as an infant in 69 AD. Within the living, uh, within the lifetime of quite a number of the apostles. Then there's Hippolytus, who lived that particular period. He said this, Baptise first the children, and if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. And there's Origen, who was born in 180 AD, and who we know was baptised as an infant. And he says, the church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. And then there is Augustine who lived in the 4th century, he wrote that infant baptism was the universal practice of the church and always had been. He says, this doctrine is held by the whole church, not instituted by councils, but always retained. Now, if you are a credo Baptist, maybe you weren't aware of that, and maybe you are prepared to at least open your mind to the possibility that there is a biblical case for pedo-baptism. But two more questions before we set out the uh, pedo-baptist case. Imagine that you and your spouse are Christian believers and you have a child. The question is, how will you treat that child? Will you treat it as a Christian or as a pagan? Will you, for example, teach it to join in with the Lord's Prayer? A prayer which begins, Our Father. But, hang on a minute, John 1:14, we read, To those who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. You have to receive Jesus to become a child of God. Our default state is that we are spiritual orphans. God is our creator, but he isn't by default our father. 
we have to receive him. We have to become adopted children for him to be our father. And yet, all Christian parents teach the Lord's Prayer to their children and encourage them to recite it in Christian services. That's because Christian parents instinctively know that the child is part of the Christian community. Sure, we all know whether we're Pido-Baptists or whether we're Credo-Baptists, we all know that, of course, the child needs to come to a personal faith and to express it publicly when they are of age, so that we know that they own the faith that they've been brought up in for themselves. But if you're not sure about this observation, let me ask you a second question. Where do you think a five-year-old or a five-month-old goes when they die? Although we're all inheritors of original sin, we're born, in other words, adrift from God, I can't imagine that any Christian doesn't think that such children go to heaven. The point being that at such a young age, Christians know that such young children are members of God's church and are treated and regarded as believers but with the knowledge that they have when they are of age, they have to accept that for themselves personally. Now, why is that? Now we get to uh, some scripture and to God's covenant or God's agreement. We have to go back to Genesis 12. God made a special agreement or a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, you see, had put his trust in God by faith. He knew that he could not earn a place into God's good books. He had to trust that somehow or other um, God would be enabled to forgive him his sins. He didn't know how that could take place. He got some clue when he, he, he obeyed God and was prepared to sacrifice his son and God substituted the son for a ram. He got some kind of clue, but he didn't fully know how God himself would come in the person of Christ and die for us in our place. And the mark of that agreement of being justified by faith, or somebody who just puts their trust in God and hopes for the eternal future, the mark of that agreement was a physical mark. It was the mark of male circumcision as a sign of entry into this covenant. And it was applied both to Isaac, who grew up to become a believer and embrace the faith like his father, and to Ishmael, his brother, who did not grow up and embrace the faith. Now, what happens in the New Testament? Well, a Christian similarly is justified by faith. Baptism, we read in Colossians 2.11, replaced circumcision as the entry sign, just as the Lord's Supper replaced the Passover as the fellowship meal. Now, although circumcision of the flesh and baptism in water were physical rites, what's really important for both is that they represent a spiritual reality. So in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, we have this promise, this hopeful expectation that God reveals through the prophet Moses. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your soul and live. And what do we get in the New Testament? Romans 2, 28 and 29. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And this is where the word sacrament or sacramental comes in. The sacraments are two, baptism and, com and communion, and they are an outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Baptism in water is a good thing, but is of no spiritual benefit unless the person is also baptised in the Spirit, something which occurs when the believer turns in repentance and puts their faith in Christ that he can forgive them. And he does so, and he enters their life through his Spirit. And the Lord's Supper, similarly. You can, of course, when we have communion, just consume the physical elements. You can eat the bread and you can drink the wine. But if you receive in penitence and faith, you are doing something spiritual, something inward. You are saying, yes, I have sinned. I need my sins forgiven. The broken bread and the poured wine signify the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, whose death it is brought my forgiveness into reality. So in eating and drinking outwardly, I am saying I am receiving the benefits of Jesus' death, namely forgiveness. Of course, by stressing the spiritual dimension over the physical dimension in the sacraments, we're making God's promise universal. His promise of uh, forgiveness is not limited to male Jews. It's both for male and female and Gentiles. Matthew 28, they were commanded to go and take the gospel, baptising all nations in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is what the adult Jewish convert to Christianity would have understood. Justified by faith in God, received the outward sign of what he or she had already experienced, namely forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit, and entry into the people of God. Now, what would, um, what would a Christian Jew have... Now, would, the, would this Christian Jew have applied the mark of the covenant, baptism, to his or her children or not? Now, consider these points. Not to have included the child in the covenant as part of the people of God would have put their children in a less favourable position than the Jewish children in the Old Testament. I think that's unlikely. Secondly, Christian parents would have included their children. They had in the Old Testament, with the mark of the covenant, they would naturally be inclined to do so under the New Testament. That's what you'd expect them to do, isn't it? They would have required an explicit command from one of the apostles, or from the Lord himself, not to baptise their children. And yet there is no clear command not to do so from Jesus or any of the apostles. There's nothing in the New Testament which says, do not baptise your children. 
And so, not surprisingly, in the Acts of the Apostles, not only are there several individual baptisms, there are baptisms of whole households. Cornelius's, the Roman centurion, Acts 11:14. Lydia, the textile businesswoman, in 16, verse 5. And the Philippian jailer, verse 6, chapter 16, verse 33. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 16, we have the household of Stephanus. And it really is special pleading to think that those households don't have children in them. And they'd have followed what Peter had said, you see, in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. This promise is for you and for your children and your children's children. Acts 2. I think it's almost impossible to imagine this Jewish convert to Christianity assuming that the sign of the new covenant, baptism, did not apply to their children. An outward sign of membership of the outward church in the hope that that child would become an an, in, an inward, an invisible member of the invisible church. Now, briefly, uh, how much water? Well, there are three options. There is submersion, where you are completely under the water. There is um, a picture of the Greek Orthodox completely uh, submerged babies. And there's a picture from an unusual angle that you don't usually see of uh, somebody who's um, gone right under the water. That's submersion, if you like. Then there's immersion. I think the little child there is, um, when he's referenced to biblical, I think is um, probably that the water's freezing cold. But um, the other one is of um, the Ethiopian eunuch. And I'll come to that in a minute. That is immersion, where the candidate is standing in the water but then water is poured over them, in the case there of the baby and in the case of the Ethiopian. And then there's a fusion, which is, uh, if you're English, if it's American, it's effusion, but um, it's where the water is poured over or sprinkled over the head of the child, but it could also be of an elderly person. I certainly remember as a curate lending our portable font to my friend, the Baptist minister, who was no way was he going to get an 89-year-old arthritic lady down into his baptistry. So, you know, he was quite happy to just use minimal amount of water. Now, the first, oh no, we're not, the first submersion, of course, symbolizes the Christian truth that you're dying and rising, a la Romans. The second, which is what all the earliest Christian art depicts, and which must have happened in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch. In, eight, in Acts 8, um, that we had read to us uh, earlier, in verse 38, we read that Philip gave orders to stop the chariot, and then the sentence, then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. Now, just as a point of grammar and syntax, went down is the verb, and Philip and the eunuch are the subject. And so the, those two, the Philip and the, and the eunuch, they share the same verb. 
In other words, what happens to one of them happens to the other of them. You can't divide it up. What is different is when it comes to Philip baptizing him. Now, whatever happened there must have happened to both of them. And nobody suggests that Philip went under the water. It's just, that's language for you. So what likely happened, as we have in all um, Christian art going back there, is that around Gaza, where you'd be hard-pressed to find a river of any substance anyway, that uh, what happened is they would go down and stand in the water to around their knees, and Philip would have poured water over the Ethiopian eunuch. And then there is um, um, a fusion. The Russian Orthodox Church, for example, baptizes, baptizes babies by complete submersion. I have never, and actually the Church of England prefers that method, though I have never encountered a vicar, and I have certainly never done, who's even tried to persuade a mother to allow us to kind of drown their baby for them. But if you look at the font, which is the stone font, which is in front of the old church, the doors to the old church, you'll notice it's pretty big. It's considerably bigger than that. And the reason is, is because you're, you know, you're supposed to baptise the baby the same day it's born. And hence, you can submerge a baby in a stone font of that size. So, uh, finally, there is, um, and of course, what a fusion symbolises is it symbolises that we are being washed clean from above by God. So, the amount of water and the method of baptism is variable. And finally, the language. In some of the Church of England liturgy, some of the language may well sound as if it grates to you. In the Book of Common Prayer, it says, seeing this child is regenerate, or in common worship, this child is born again. And immediately, if you're a credo-baptist, and if you're an Arminian, um, then you will immediately say, but they're not born again. They're not regenerate. They're just wet. Well, that's because you probably haven't distinguished between the difference between regeneration and conversion. Regeneration is God bringing us to working in our life by his spirit, bringing some life into our spiritual life, into our dead souls, so that we might come to be in a position where we can choose him when we hear about him. Whereas conversion is our response to that work of God. And who is to say that God is not at work in the lives of very, very young children, the children of believers. Our prayer is always that what may have begun then outwardly um, might inwardly continue throughout their life till they come to a point where they are converted, where they do profess faith. It's certainly what happens in Psalm 8, verse 2. It's what happened in the life of Jeremiah 1, 4. It's most famously in John the Baptist, who, when he was in his mother's womb, was inspired by the Spirit to leap in response to his cousin Jesus' approach in his mother's womb, when Jesus was presumably just three months and the Baptist was six months old. 
So Christians uh, do disagree about baptism, but should that disagreement be a barrier to unity? I think not. I think it's important to realise what we share in common. The first is that we bring up, whether we're a Pido-Baptist or a Credo-Baptist, that we will desire as Christian parents to bring up a child as a Christian. Secondly, we realise that they need to accept that faith for themselves. And thirdly, when they do so, they need to make a public profession of that faith so that we know that they are part of the people of God on their own profession of faith, not that of their parents any longer. So if that's what we agree on, whether we're Pido or Credo Baptist, what is left to disagree about? And the answer is the water. When to chuck it around and how much to chuck it around. I put it to you that the outward and visible is less important than the inward and the invisible and that we should remember what is important. I suspect God does. And finally, how does St Mary's apply this in practice? To include in good conscience and with integrity the different views of our members. It isn't something that is actually contentious. We, we uh, live in quite a, a harmony. There's only one thing we can't do. But these are the things we do do. So, for example, if you look at the way we apply it in practice, we have Thanksgiving service, uh, services. This is where we have people who, I suppose you would say, they were God-fearers. They're theists, but they're not yet Christians. And they don't want to promise anything which they can't, um, which they either don't mean or can't actually put into practice. And they just want to thank God for the birth of a child. No strings attached. And they can do it with integrity, and we can do it with integrity. The second is a thanksgiving which is in practice more like a kind of Baptist dedication. We have a few extra prayers which the, the family kind of um, pray at the same time. It's for those who haven't um, got to a position where they can accept um, infant baptism, but they want to bring up the child, if you like, as a Christian within the family of God. Then there's infant baptism for those who do think that infant baptism, if you are believing parents, um, is a valid thing to do and a biblical thing to do. Then there's believer's baptism, um, which speaks for itself. And then there's confirmation, which is for both uh, those who were baptised as a baby and for those who have just been baptised as believers. Because what we're doing is we're praying for God's strength as they embark upon the Christian faith that they have just professed for themselves. Confirm is derived from a Latin word, the words con fortis, which means with strength. And we all need God's strength in order to live out the Christian life that we profess. And that's the prayer that we offer. And finally, I end with any takers, really. Is it time for you that you should go public about your personal faith in Christ? 
either in baptism and confirmation um, or by confirmation alone, having years ago been baptised as a child and been brought up in a Christian family. If you'd like to consider doing that, maybe you have professed faith on a on an M&M camp or an Urban Saints camp or a weekend away or you've just come to faith after you've been coming along to church here for a few months um, or years even. And you know that, uh, yes, you have handed your life over to Christ but you've never gone public about it and you've never been either baptised or baptised and confirmed. So... I invite you to think about it. If you would like to, we will be having such services hopefully in the autumn. And if you'd like to kind of inquire more, then if you're in Cypher, talk to uh, Steve or one of the youth leaders. If you're um, over 18, then uh, talk to myself or Caroline or one of the other staff. If you'd like to read something further, then uh, there's this little booklet which is freely available. It's called Baptism. It's by Francis Schaeffer, who's a Presbyterian, by the way, or was. And um, there is also a book by Michael Green, who's an Anglican, which is also uh, very good. So let me pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's possible to see um, where... Credo and Pido Baptists hold things in common, the core things. May we uh, be united around them and may we politely agree to differ on the amount of water and when we um, apply it, we pray. And we pray for those, most importantly, who have come to a quiet personal faith in you, that you would nudge them to have the, uh, the courage to go public about that and for us to pray that you would strengthen them for their Christian walk. Amen.